Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll speak to artists and educators who are making a difference in their respective fields. We'll hear from Stephen Melendez, who is the new artistic director of the New York Theater Ballet. Melendez started dancing after NYTB's founder, Diana Beyer, came into a Bronx homeless shelter looking to give youngsters an opportunity. Stephen was there with his mom and was just seven years old at the time. And about a year went on, I'd been taking these classes and I had my first opportunity to perform. And as every young dancer knows, the first time you're on stage is in the Nutcracker. And I'll also speak with pianist, composer, saxophonist, and educator, Adago K. Steve Colson. He and his wife, musical partner and singer Equa Colson, will be part of a special performance coming up in June at the Harlem School of the Arts. We've been up there several times to interact with the students and they've got some really talented people teaching and the students are responding. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Joining us on the WBGO Journal is the new artistic director of the New York Theater Ballet, Stephen Melendez. No stranger, though, to NYTB. Stephen steps into the shoes of company founder Diana Beyer, who recently had some comments about Stephen, saying that what makes him perfect is that he has been a part of NYTB since he was seven years old. He knows the company and its ethos because it's in his bones. While he'll make the company his own, I know he will carry on what the New York Theater Ballet has already established. He is continuing the line. And Stephen joins us. Great to see you. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. This is exciting news. Now you're taking over a company that you are extremely familiar with and have been a part of for so long, as Diana mentioned. Take us back to being seven years old and how this all started for Stephen Melendez. Well, uh, it's an unusual story. It's an unusual story for ballet, certainly. Uh, I started uh, dancing one day when Diana Beyer walked into a New York City homeless shelter and asked if any of the kids wanted to study ballet. And I was living in the South Bronx at the time, and you can imagine the South Bronx um, in the early 90s. Um, and my mother, um, who wasn't a particular fan of dance or music or art or anything, just a normal person. Um, she said that I would do that. And I argued with her a little bit, but you know, she's my mother. And so she gets to <laughs> decide what we're going to be doing. Um, and I went to ballet classes and um, it wasn't really for me at first, if I'm honest, but um, uh, I had to stick with it because it was serving as childcare. Um, you know, my mom, she worked a handful of uh, jobs. She was a single working mother with two kids at that time. School got out at three and she didn't get home until seven or eight. Um, and I wasn't allowed to be in the homeless shelter where we lived. I wasn't allowed to be there alone. You had to be there with an adult. And so instead of me sitting out in the street waiting for her to get home from work, uh, I was in ballet classes. And about a year went on, I'd been taking these classes and I had my first opportunity to perform. And as every young dancer knows, the first time you're on stage is in the Nutcracker. Um, and I was uh, Little Mouse number two. <laughs> and I had a, a mask that was about as big as my torso. And I had, you know, maybe 20 seconds on stage in the, in the big battle with the Rat King and all this stuff. And at the end of the show, I got to take a bow. And stepping out there, I mean, there's no 
chance in the world looking back that this is really the way it was. But in that moment, I swear to you, everyone in the audience was applauding and, you know, bravo and all this stuff. And they were, and they were saying all that for me. And I thought, wow, this is really neat. And, um, you know, looking back now, I think it's more evident to me that that feeling that I had that day then when I was that age had more to do with a sort of subconscious uh, realization that growing up, um, you know, poor and living in a shelter was sort of a story of being invisible. Um, you know, people, well, we just don't talk about those things, right? Um, and to step out on the stage and have acknowledgement, such overt acknowledgement and applause and sort of validation um, was really neat. And um, so I stuck with it. I, you know, fell in love with it. I fell in love with dance. I fell in love with the technique. I fell in love with the culture and the history of ballet. And the, I fell in love with the idea that in the ballet studio, it didn't matter who your parents were or how much money you had or what clothes you were wearing or any of those things. I mean, back then we didn't have cell phones, but you can imagine today, you know, this, this kid has that trick and toy and that kid doesn't or whatever. None of that mattered. What mattered was Yesterday, we both learned the same ballet step at the same time for the first time. And last night, I went home and practiced and you didn't. And today, I am not falling over and you are. Um, you know, it's this idea that everyone is equal in the dance studio. Um, and so that, so, you know, I, my early career was um, in the ballet school with Diana Beyer with New York Theater Ballet um, through a program they have called LIFT. That's the name of their outreach program. Um, and it integrates homeless and at-risk children and underserved populations into the ballet classes with all of the rest of the children in the school um, anonymously, which is, I think, really important. And there's some performing opportunities for some of the younger kids. And as I got older, uh, it turned out that I had a little bit of a talent for dance. Um, I joined the ballet company, the professional company when I was 14 as an apprentice. I'm fairly young for people who don't know much about dance. It's pretty, pretty young. Moved up the ranks pretty quickly. Um, I was a principal dancer by the time I was 19. I had moved, um, moved down to South America to work with a company in Buenos Aires for a little bit. Um, and down there, of course, I um, got to see a different way of working. Um, I was now fully into the ballet scene. Um, and uh, we had toured internationally around the world a couple of times. I moved back to New York, and then ultimately I ended up moving to Eastern Europe um, in Estonia, as close to Russia as I could get, you know, the sort of motherland of classical ballet. Um, and I was there for a couple of years as a principal dancer in a state theater there and doing all of the classics, you know, Swan Lake and Giselle and all that stuff. Um, eventually, I um, started a, my own summer program, a teaching program in Japan. I was going uh, probably twice a year for about 10 years. Um, teaching young young dancers and performing uh, in in Asia, and so I had all of this experience as a dancer, and I you know came back came back to New York Theater Ballet um, on and off during that period um, over about maybe fifteen years, always coming home to visit family, of course, and to work with Diana and the company here. Then, as you know, as it goes with classical dancers, um, I got injured, and it was really sudden, um, and I thought oh, okay, we're getting a little bit older here. You got to sort of take it easy. And I am not one to take it easy. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to throw myself entirely into something else. And I moved into um, administration. Um, I took a job as the artistic director for the Highland Program for National Dance Institute, New Mexico. And I was there for three years and I learned really a lot. I'm so grateful for the opportunity they gave me to have a position that big 
um, being my first administrative position, <laughs> which um, was really, really special. But what I learned in, in, from that side was that the administration of uh, outreach programs and dance programs and arts programs and arts education programs can be done the right way or the wrong way. You know, you can do it in a way that is aware of the community within which your organization exists, or you can do it in a way where you're not. And at India, New Mexico, they do it the right way. And I'm really, really happy to have had that experience. Diana now is, she founded the company 44 years ago, and she's uh, ready to retire. And so there was a search put out for a New York district director to replace her. And uh, she and I spoke a little bit, and I was hesitant at first, if I'm honest, you know, I'm quite young. The legacy that she has built both for the New York Theater Valley School and for the New York Theater Valley Company and for the LIFT program that I came through that still is running now. Um, and the legacy that she's built uh, within the dance community in New York and nationally and internationally, you know, doing really fantastic works, um, uh, revivals of, of old masterpieces and commissioning new works um, and really staying on the cutting edge of what's happening in the dance world are really, really big shoes to fill. But she actually convinced me that she thought that I'd be just the right person for it. Um, and so now here I am. Uh, I'm what, two weeks into my into my position and um, I'm enjoying it. There's, there's some challenges and catching up and figuring out how things work here. Um, and seeing it now from the other side, seeing from the administrative side and understanding really the kinds of um, sacrifices that she made for what she knew was the right thing to make sure that you're doing it the right way and not the wrong way um, and all of that. So, and now here I am. And that wonderful Lyft program that you mentioned will be featured in a new documentary that's going to be premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. And that film uh, has been filmed over the past 10, maybe 11 years now. And it's followed me over that time. Um, and it's also followed a handful of the students from the Lyft program now. If anyone is interested to learn about Lyft and that program of taking homeless children and putting them on the ballet stage and the value of that program and programs like it, um, I really, really recommend having a look at that film because it's, it's something special. I'm so glad, Stephen, that you mentioned the word talent because you could have opportunity and you did because of this program but that only takes you so far, right? You could be involved in dance. You said even you didn't necessarily even like it at first, but you did have talent inside you that just needed to be nurtured. When you think about being a dancer, can you grow to be a great dancer or is it already inside you? That is the question. <laughs> I'll give you, you know, this is something that I, I started thinking about far too late in my career. And it's a conversation I've tried to have with a lot of dancers um, who, with whom I've worked over the years. If you think of an artist, um, it's just someone who paints, um, you know, it's, it's clear that the painter themselves uh, are holding the tool of the paintbrush to apply the paint to the canvas. Um, clearly the, the human person is the artist and the brush itself is the tool. Nobody would argue that the brush is the artist. Dance is interesting though, because the steps that the dancer does on the stage are given to them by the choreographer and the costumes are given to them by the costume designer and the story is given to them by the librettist and the music is given by the composer. And the dancer often in ballet certainly 
is asked to do exactly what you're told. And so then I pose the question, is the dancer the artist or is the dancer the paintbrush with whom all of the artists around them are manipulating to create what's happening on the stage? And what I found is that dancers that I've spoken with who lean more toward the classical world, you know, the Swan Lakes and the Giselles and the Sleeping Beauties and the Nutcrackers, um, take that question and kind of feel insulted by it. Um, you know, because I think it's because they recognize that actually maybe they don't have as much say as they would like to have, because a lot of those really classical things that have been being performed for hundreds of years, I mean, Giselle is 200 years old almost, um, are so regimented, you know, you must do it exactly like this. And there's a clear right and wrong answer. And then the more modern I get with the dancers that I'm speaking with, um, they love the question and they want to discuss it. And especially dancers who are working with choreographers in the room at the moment that they're working. They really feel, oh no, of course I'm the artist. You know, I'm, I'm the one who says this and that and we talk about it and we collaborate and we figure it out together. I think that if a dancer can find a way to convince themselves that they are the artist, then it's not a question of talent or not, a, not talent. I think it's a question of how you approach the work. Um, if, if, you're, if you're approaching the work from the viewpoint of I need to do something that will please somebody else, the director, the choreographer, the audience or whatever, then yeah, you need talent because you're kind of out there by yourself. But if you're approaching the work from the perspective of I'm gonna put myself into it and I'm gonna work with all of the other artists around me to create some piece of humanity, some piece of art, some piece of theater that goes on the stage that opens a dialogue with the audience about whatever it's about, you know, love or hate or war or whatever the thing is, then I don't know that you need so much talent for that necessarily. What I think you need is um, an open mind and an open heart. You mentioned early on in this interview that there's the classics when it comes to ballet, and there are new pieces. And young dancers of today, they, they want to branch out as well as do the classics. So what does Stephen Melendez bring to the New York Theater Ballet that will ignite the younger dancers and give them maybe some freedom that you talked about that maybe they didn't feel that they wanted to talk about or were given the opportunity before? Yeah. You know, for me, it's about the company culture. This is the thing that um, I would like to evolve into what I think is becoming one of the more important things for young people, not just in dance or in the arts, but just some people in general. Um, I want to cultivate an organization, an arts organization here in New York Theatre Ballet, where the dancers feel that they have a, an artistic voice in the new commissions that are happening. Um, I'm interested to commission artists, whether they're choreographers or composers or whomever, that are coming in with an open mind to work with the dancers that I have here and to collaborate together to create new things. You know, for me, it's about the intersection between the art, the dancing, obviously, and humanity, um, the human people that are involved in the art that we're making. Um, and if you can find the Venn diagram where those two things overlap, that's the kind of work I want to make. Um, and then if we can add a third circle in there, um, current social climate. Um, next year, uh, two of the works that I would like to bring, um, you know, we've got to talk about budgets and all these kinds of things. Um, it's, we're a little bit advanced now, but um, Anthony Tudor's Dark Elegies. Tudor is um, a master choreographer, you know, but he's dead now, you know, old, old dead choreographer. Um, but uh, Dark Elegies is a piece about the loss of 
children. Um, and it's so, so um, timeless. And the other piece that I want to bring next, next year, also by Tudor, um, it's called Echoing of Trumpets. Um, this piece, whether we get it or not, you know, I don't know. It'll be very complicated to get the rights and all this kind of stuff. But um, Echoing of Trumpets is um, a deeply moving work of his um, that depicts the uh, occupation of a town in Eastern Europe by the Nazis. Um, and it's just such a remarkable piece. And it's something that the world needs to see again anew. I just want to take my glasses off for just a moment. And I want to get just personal with Stephen Melendez because I certainly hope whether you're seven years old or you're 17 or you're 27 and you're listening to the inspiring story of this young man who is now the new artistic director of the New York Theater Ballet, check out the documentary lift that's going to be at the Tribeca Film Festival. But you are an inspiration and more importantly, you're a role model. And I love talking to role models, Stephen, because that's what that we need role models in this country during these turbulent times. Congratulations on your new position. We look forward to the whole new season for the NYTB with you in charge. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the WBGO Journal. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. Joining us on the WBGO Journal are two very familiar people in the world of jazz and at WBGO, great friends of the radio station, noted pianist, composer, saxophonist, and educator, Adagoke Steve Colson, and his wife and musical partner, singer Equa Colson. Hey, thanks for joining us on the WBGO Journal. Hey, thanks for having us. How thanks, Doug. You both look very comfortable together because that's been quite a partnership for many years, hasn't it? It's been quite a few years, yes. Since college. <laughs> it's been a great run, and uh, it's so exciting, the fact that both of you have been making beautiful music together for a long time. Exciting news that has been coming out from the Harlem School of the Arts, a commission and performance that is coming up on June 11th, and it's a culmination of a lot of work that has gone into this special commission. Ade, tell us about it. The piece is dedicated to the Harlem School of the Arts. And uh, Dorothy Maynard was a great uh, you know, opera star. And so she's the one that founded the institution. But with the COVID and that type of thing, for the last two years, they've lost some student attendance. So part of our um, mission, so to speak, is to try and raise the uh, profile, let people know that you know, the school is functioning and the students can come back and, you know, fully participate in the music lessons and that type of thing. But we've been up there several times to interact with the students and they've got some really talented people teaching and the students are responding. So it's just um, been a real pleasure and I'm really grateful to have won the, uh, the award. 
that award that he's talking about. He's the recipient of the South Arts 2021 Jazz Rove Creative Residencies Grant, which is funded by the Dora Stoop Charitable Foundation. And through that funding made possible by this grant, Adagoke Steve Colson has been leading afternoon jazz at the Harlem School of Arts. And when it comes to teaching kids, that's nothing new for you. You've been teaching for many, many years at all different places. We'll get yes. to that in a moment. But why do you love to teach so much? It's sort of like I had really wonderful teacher myself and uh, he was an inspiration. And uh, he told me, look, you can you can actually go out here and become a musician, you know, professionally if you'd like to. And uh, at the time I was about 15 years old. So I just feel like I've got to give back, uh, especially to young people that may not have had opportunity to get lessons, you know, at a young age like I was able to. I've been mentored by other musicians, had some great mentors. I could name several like Chris White, Max Roach, just really great people, Andrew Surreal, different people in the ASTM. We've been around a lot of wonderful musicians, uh, the guys in the Art Ensemble, Art Ensemble of Chicago, Muhal Richard Abrams. So the list goes on and on because, uh, in fact, most of the musicians that I've been lucky to be around, they're very, very uh, generous. They, um, you know, they give you information, they help you along and give you suggestions about what you might do or where you could perform, that type of thing. So I feel like I kind of owe it, you know, as, as part of the, the culture that I've been involved in to, to do the same thing with other people. Equally, you and Ade have gone into schools and done many programs to help kids learn about jazz. Equal, why do you feel it's important that young people know this music, know its history and its future? Well, actually, I just retired as supervisor of arts in the East Orange School District, which is the town where Ade grew up. I'm a Chicagoan, and that's where we met. I was just teaching music there, enjoying it. Ade had done a stint teaching music in Chicago. He got lucky enough to be put at Wendell Phillips High School with the famous Willie Pickens. So he's on the job learning all over the place with Willie as a mentor. But um, the year that uh, New Jersey Performing Arts Center opened is also the year they asked Ade to do a commission there. And the superintendent said, is that your husband that they're advertising? Uh, doing this first original piece for the Performing Arts Center and it's a big hubaloo. And then he decided he would include wordsmiths, Amiri Baraka and Richard Wesley, who are good friends. So this became a big deal. And I said, yeah, that's him. Well, didn't he go to school here where I had been assigned? And down the street, VLD was turning into a school of the arts. And then Whitney Houston, where Whitney attended, was also turning into a school of the arts. So he said, oh, wait a second. He, they, next thing I know, I'm out of the classroom and putting forward energy into galvanizing all the art staff around this idea of how important the arts are. It's not the arts and academics, the arts are an academic area. And we embraced that and moved forward, ended up naming the school after Ms. Tyson. She said only if she could be involved. And then we moved into the grant we got for this huge building and performing arts center. And, front, and I always told the principals, what you really want is all your students to think like an artist. 
Therefore, they are engaged. They are bringing in all kinds of influences and information and creating something. I think, okay, please tell us about more about the master classes that are going on at the Harlem School for the Arts. The one that Marlene Rice did was really great because it was a string trio. So Marlene is a violinist. Neoka is a uh, cellist. And uh, the young lady that they had with them, Destiny, Destiny is a young student, but a really fine bass player. So they talked about, you know, the development of uh, strings and, uh, you know, symphonic music and that type of thing. And then how jazz, we improvise using those instruments. So that was really nice. And the sound uh, in that place is, is really breathtaking. So then we did the concert uh, in April. And I had some really great musicians with me. So we talked about Duke Ellington and we consider him the great American composer, probably the greatest of the American, you know, people playing an American form of music. You know, he really changed music. A lot of people don't realize the influence that Duke had in terms of just changing music, generally speaking, musical texture, that type of thing, extending uh, forms. And then Thelonious Monk, uh, doing something similar in terms of his influence on harmony and, you know, his odd placement of accents in some of his songs and the rhythmic changes. So we talked a little about that. And then Randy uh, Weston in terms of going back and forth and bringing African influences because he did have a club in Nigeria. And then he also later had a club in Morocco. And in fact, I was able to hang out one time. I was with the Miri and we were slated to play at uh, NYU and Randy Weston was on the bill. So we sat there afterwards, had a conversation with Randy and he had one of the Ganawa musicians uh, with him. And the Ganawa are uh, a branch that came off of the Mali Empire. And so they're what you call the griots or the uh, storytellers. So even though they're in Morocco, they have like the culture that was taking place during the Mali Empire, where your praise singers were put in that position by the emperor. So Randy was really, um, he was very influential in terms of making it uh, known that we can't just talk about jazz as an American form. Uh, and he said, well, if we take out some of the African elements, it, it won't be, we, we won't have, you know, what we have now. So it was just a general discussion about those type of things. And then we played, but the musicians on the gig were really fine. I played with uh, Faron Akhlaf for a number of years. Um, so he was our drummer. And uh, Luke Stewart, a young bass player, but I've known him for several years. And we played together. Fun in the rhythm section. And then Equal was singing. And I also had uh, Jay Rodriguez, fine saxophonist. And uh, so it was a fun a fun outing. And um, Lee Hogan's is the uh, executive uh, director for education at the Harlem School. So he was playing trumpet. But for some of the classes that I've been in where we just talk to the students, you know, they're listening to R. Blakey and they're listening to Miles Davis and Horace Silver and that type of thing. So we just talk about those those people, or those influences. And I try to give them some pointers uh, because some of them, like uh, the last class, the uh, drummer, I think he's only 13, but he sounds really good. And um, so you're listening to him and you're thinking, wow, I remember when I was, you know, 14, 15. And so that's why I say, you know, you have to kind of really um, spend some time and talk. And they're very interested in, in the background and things like that, because there's so much 
music out here, they wonder, well, who do I listen to? There's so much, uh, you know, how do I choose? And so we start out usually with the blues and rhythm changes and that type of thing. And then it gets more elaborate. Equal, I know that you're really excited about this commission and the performance set for June 11th at 7.30 at the Harlem School of the Arts. When he decided to compose for octet, he had specific people in mind. And so we played with the dates and the rehearsals and around mm-hmm. everybody's schedule, including ours. And so we have Idago K. Steve Colson composing and on piano, I'm singing. But Freddie Hendricks on trumpet, whose work we love. We love all these people, their work. J.D. Perrin, who has been with us before on big projects. Yeah, Marlene Rice, who I brought in to save the strings at Tyson. And she's so much more than that. Brian Carrot playing vibes. Luke Stewart on bass and Farone Akloff. So the, the gig in April allowed that rhythm section to cook together a little bit. Luke, Farone, and Ade, that combination. But he's writing with all of these voices and these artists uh, in mind because this opportunity allowed for that. Fantastic. And the date is June 11th at 7.30, Harlem School of the Arts Commission and Performance. And it features not only Ade, but... Equa Colson and those members that she just talked about. What a pleasure to see you both. I love to see you smile. Hey. I can just imagine what uh, what just spending a day in the Colson house will be. Beautiful artwork, beautiful sounds of the music. You two are special. We appreciate hey. it. Hey, thank you a lot, Doug. Thank you, and thank you for the thank support, you. your individual support, and yeah. WBGO. WBGO. Seems yeah. like great things are happening at BGO, and uh, we've always been supporters, so thank you. You can see the entire interview with Go K. Steve Colson and Equi Colson on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO 88.3 FM and WBGO.org.